like, you know, like, just because you have this great moment, it doesn't mean fulfillment. Yeah. It does not mean you're going to be fulfilled. It's temporary. That's a, that's a lie. When I knocked out Tommy Morris and blah, 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 ten minutes after, I would, like, you know, the fight's announcement, I'm the world champion, I plummet hmm. into depression. You know why? I got to do it again. Terrifying. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guests this week are director Mickey Duget and Michael Bent, the ex-heavyweight champion of the world. Um, our stories came together here because we worked together on the first episode of the critically acclaimed Netflix series, Losers, which Mickey directed, Michael starred in, and uh, I did some interviews with Michael. Um, when he's staring into the camera blowing away millions of people who watched. He was actually staring into my eyes. I was having to contend with him telling this incredible story. Um, Michael, more than any other boxer that I've ever met, uh, has a, a uniqueness and a kind of arresting quality to the way he seems to look at his own life and boxing and where boxing and acting seem to intersect. Uh, just an utterly fascinating guy who's overcome a lot. I don't know many people who win the heavyweight championship and then are beaten to the doorstep of death and then transition to playing their father's <laughs> hero's nemesis with Sonny Liston in opposite Will Smith in the Ali film. He starred as Othello on stage. He is, is just a, such a complex, intriguing, thoughtful person. And Mickey brought out his story in a tremendously artful, compassionate way. So I wanted to talk to them both about what that experience was like, making losers together. And uh, these are two of my favorite people that the accident of boxing has brought me to. So I hope you enjoy it. I was thinking about the impact of losers. One of the things that jumps out at me with Netflix is this Andy Warhol quote, that the great thing about Coca-Cola is there's just one Coca-Cola. The president drinks the same Coca-Cola that a homeless guy drinks. And with Netflix, there's only one Netflix. There's no premium Netflix. So when this show goes out, it's in President Obama's home. It's in everybody's home. It reaches everybody. What's it like for a show like that where it's like, when I turned on Netflix that morning of its debut, not just I'm seeing it, everybody in the world has access to seeing your show, and the first thing they're seeing is Michael Bent's episode. What did that feel like for both of you? Well, I have to say it was just uh, the, the first emotion. It's just exciting because I've never had anything that was broadcast to 191 countries. It feels like the, the genesis of the project was that it started as, as an art project, as an idea, as an experiment. And uh, to put together a team who worked for a year to make something with heart that was more than a sum of its parts, that was more than just um, a manifestation of, of my idea, but something that could really connect with people, for it to go out to 191 people, it was exciting. And 
um, we were all really curious if it was going to resonate with people. Um, I've never been to 191 countries. I, uh, there were people uh, in cultures that the, the show was going into their living rooms that were very different from me. So um, part of, I think, what was so satisfying and, and exciting about that moment was, yeah, wondering what was going to happen. And, you know, I'm curious from, from Mike's perspective, but for me, um, almost immediately, really surprising and beautiful things started to happen and uh, in terms of the response. And uh, it was just, we rode a real exciting wave for at least the first couple of months. Yeah. What was your reaction? Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what to expect. But like, you know, the response was, was uh, kind of overwhelming. Uh, well, not kind of, it was overwhelming. You know, um, responses from Israel and Japan and London and, you know, uh, Russia. It's overwhelming, man. But it was gratifying. You See, know, you, and you kind of have the whole world looking at you. You're the first episode yeah. of the show. Yeah. So your face is carrying this. Well, it was like, you know, you know it was the first episode. But I think that uh, the fact that um, the candor, the honesty, mm -hmm. that's what, that's what um, hooked people. You know, because I'm so, what I'm saying, what I experienced, they've experienced as well. Hmm. Yeah. Must be something too that, what was, why was Michael's episode sort of like the gateway drug into this series? Why was he put up front as opposed to like, because all the episodes were fantastic. See, everybody I know that saw them, loved them all. What made Michael's story the one you wanted to put up front? There were, there were a couple reasons. I, I would say, the, the less soulful reasons were that Netflix did uh, encourage us to order the episodes with more international sports uh, at the top. So we started with boxing, then went to soccer, and then figure skating. Those were our first three episodes. And at, uh, as compared to something like the international marathon runner, uh, the, the uh, marathon de Saab runner, or the dog mushing episode, which felt a little bit less international. So that, that was number one. But um, the bigger reason for me and the reason why I pushed for Michael's episode to be at the top is that I felt like there was something, uh, a, a really unique connection that I personally had with Michael. There was something about his story that resonated with, with me in a way that represented what I hoped the show could do, uh, be a very, very different kind of uh, storytelling in sports where we've heard narratives over and over, not just in documentaries, but in, in fictional boxing films. This was a completely different style of narrative. I think it showcased uh, artistically what we were trying to do that was different about Losers. And Michael, uh, for anyone that's seen the episode knows this, he has a charisma that really draws you in. So as, a, as an invitational opening to the show, um, I felt like that was, his episode was the best choice. For, for you, Michael, was it scary, I mean, to be, to be part of a series that's called Losers before mm -hmm. people understood mm -hmm. philosophically mm -hmm. what that meant? Like, it sounds like it's a nasty thing, like it's Not kicking you. You know, I, I, I love, I dug the concept uh, when we were, uh, were in New York, I believe, uh, Mickey pulls me inside and says, like, you know, Mike, the uh, name of this 
series is losers. I'm like, my man, check us out. Like, I'm not offended by it. I think Mickey thought that I would, you know, I would be taken aback. No, that's where it is. You don't get to like, you know, reach the top of the mountaintop if you don't experience failure first. If you think that, like, you know, then you're gonna be disappointed. Do you think? I mean, it seems sort of radical the idea that losers a defining moment in somebody's career being about loss mm. that um, they would have so much self-awareness and self-realization from that event that could connect to people whereas the narrative and especially in the United States is about winning it's almost a zero-sum game with the American dream you know it's winners we have a president who's always talking about winners 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 and this show goes totally counterintuitive to that and there's so much depth to these people that have experienced a traumatic moment and and it offers such an in, inspiring message to people that people connected to through loss I, I just wonder for both of you like a conceptually that seems like a hard story to sell in this country that there's value in people finding something in loss uh, I wonder was there resistance to that at all in trying to pitch this and and just even getting people to help assist you as a team to realize this this vision sure well for sure i think that it, uh the idea is very counterculture mm. uh you turn on you know the network tv or or cable uh portrayals of, of sports these types of stories are not the ones that they introduce a broadcast with um, but i think for all of us and and i can speak for myself um uh, I'm, my, my life is just as defined by the things that, that didn't work out as the things that did. Uh, I had aspirations to do uh, things artistically that were dead-end paths. I had relationships that didn't work out, that I really wanted to work out, mm. that didn't work out. And those twists and turns are just as much a part of my story as the times when I, you know, uh, would win a job, would win a... Uh, back when I did athletic things, win a tournament, you know, if, uh, if I want to tell somebody's story, if I want to tell my own story and be honest about it and destigmatize those moments when things didn't work out, it, it tells a more full story of who I actually am to include those moments when things didn't work out rather than telling a ridiculous string of victories as if I've just been on a winning streak ever, ever since I was a kid. Those are the stories, and that's the, the angle that many uh, sports stories are told, stories of great artists, great artists, scientists. And it, if we compare ourselves to those heroic narratives where it seems like there was never a failure, we feel less by comparison. We don't feel like we have anything to do with those people because all of our lives, we're dealing with problems, we're dealing with things that don't work out constantly. So by comparison, we feel... Terrible, <laughs> you, know? And, and, you know, and like you know, by definition, like you know, society promotes that. They don't like promote like you know, loss and failure. You know, they you know they promote winning, and over the top winning. You know, uh, and I'm a firm believer, man. Like you, you, you can't um, get anywhere without like you know, some kind of failure or loss. You know, that's where it starts from. And we all want to lose. Muhammad Ali lost. You know, the greatest, you know, 
actors lost out on, on certain roles. The greatest writers, like, you know, lost out on certain gigs. It happens. They're like, that law should drive you. And to answer your question about just selling this type of, of story, as I was researching stories and, and finding out about, uh, you know, the lives of people like Michael, it did seem very obvious that those moments of failure uh, for a certain type of person or team, that those were moments for growth. Uh, that, the, that the subjects of these stories, that the uh, people like Mike used those moments to look in the mirror and to challenge themselves to find something positive out of that experience. And that idea of finding something good to come out of this very taboo experience of failure, that's the core of the idea. That's the core of the show. That's the heart of the show. That uh, I chose subjects who admirably uh, responded to that failure. And that could be uh, inspiring to all of us who are dealing with failure and problems all the time. So as I was selling the show uh, and selling subjects like, like Mike, it was really about uh, showcasing uh, all of these hidden stories of integrity uh, where subjects were showing an admirable response to a kind of a failure that maybe all of us hadn't experienced on a grand stage in front of millions of people on television, but that we can relate to because there's nothing more fundamentally human about having experiences that don't work out. Um, and uh, so I didn't actually find that uh, much resistance to, to the show or, or to those ideas. Well, it's odd because it just seems so obvious once you point it out how that worked. Like you're talking about these people overcoming moments of failure. We all identify with failure. I mean, taking a, an adage from boxing, Customato used to say that nature prepares us for death because we lose everything around us until there's nothing to live for. Mm -hmm. So loss is this defining rule of life that is unavoidable for all of right. us. Right. And yet we celebrate quote unquote winners. Right. And I was thinking like when you talked about the concept to me for the first time, I went back to this reaction to Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame acceptance speech where it was just a laundry list of grievance mm. and bitterness, mm. including to his own children, mm -hmm. talking to them saying, boy, I wouldn't want to be you. And the reaction was, wow, I really never known who this person was who was such a beautiful champion, uh, wins every championship, mm -hmm. is the greatest basketball player ever, mm -hmm. he's this icon of corporate... America, yeah. where he's you know, worth a billion dollars and yeah. on and on. And it doesn't at all seem like it was enough. One of the prices that we pay for being like great is being selfish. That's like you know, a characteristic of like you know, greatness is being selfish, man, and being like a you know, complete blah, 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 an a-hole. That's, that's, that's a characteristic. And you have to like, you know, that's, 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 uh, that's the thing that drives you. Because when you were on that path of like trying to make it, people shit on you. When you're a star, oh, I love you. I bow down to you, not, but like you know, you weren't bowing down to me like in a while. It was like, like in the uh, in the uh, fire of like doubting myself. So like you know, it's like you know, uh, uh, Grace, like you know, they're resentful. Well, and how I, could you not? And I, I think with Jordan, like compared to you, mm -hmm. I think what people were blown away by, you are somebody who, against the odds, mm -hmm. beats a, a very successful heavyweight champion. Mm -hmm. 
you knock him out with one punch, destroy him making $9 million, yes. suddenly you're on TV and it's like, oh, who's Michael Ben? He, right. He's now the WBO, right. World Heavyweight Champion. Where's his career going? Mm -hmm. It's going to England very soon after mm -hmm. where not only do you lose, mm -hmm. but you almost get killed. You get knocked into a coma. Right. The doctor tells you if you keep fighting, you could be seriously brain damaged yeah. or die or get killed. Yeah. Your career's over. And yet, as you're telling your story, unlike Michael Jordan telling the story of his path to becoming around 50 years old and the greatest basketball player ever, where it's almost all bitterness and anger and resentment, which is very surprising to people to hear, yours has something that was not present in his speech at all, which was a lot of gratitude mm. for where you're at in yeah. life and what you've overcome. And it's like, well, shouldn't you be the bitter one and the one who's angry? Right. You know about the career On you want. Yeah, sure. yeah. But like you know, I've made uh, I've I've uh, managed to um, make this transition from like being, you know, on stage in a boxing ring, to being on stage like you know in in theater, or film and TV. I'm lucky, you know. I had like you know great mentors like what happened to bump into, you know. Maybe I like you know willed it. I don't know, but like however I got there, like you know, I'm appreciative like you know of the space I'm in. Because the people who I met um, um, in L.A. and during like the arts field, man, these people like like light me up because they saw that holy crap, this guy gets it, whatever that it is, and like you know, it's 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 not polite, like you know, um, being on that path is not comfortable. Like uh, boxing uh, pales in comparison to like you know the. Uh, the kind of uh, search you have to delve into, you know, as an artist, man. You know, uh, you can't you can't be non-reflective. I mean, you can't be unreflective and and, and like you know, be an artist. It's impossible. You gotta look at yourself in the mirror, and there are some things that you may not like in the mirror, but you gotta embrace that. You said that you, one of your great lines in the show is is box, boxing. Boxing is acting inside out? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not allowed to like boxers, Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson, Jack Dempsey, blah, blah, blah. The only person who really admitted like, you know, uh, uh, anxiety or fear was like, you know, Muhammad Ali. You know, um, I think. Uh, you, you can't like, you know, show uh, any signs of weakness as a fighter. You know, so we have to act. When you see... Riddick Bow, uh, when you see Evander see, Holyfield uh, fight Riddick Bow and he's like around 9, 10, uh, Riddick almost takes his head off. He's acting like he's not hurt. But dude, clearly he's hurt. So, you know, hence, this, hence that statement, man. Do you think you viewed your your boxing career? Like, was it a, 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 were you really an actor who was playing a boxer? I was boxer? acting every goddamn time I stepped into the ring, champ. Yeah. I was either, I was never me. I was either... Roberto Duran, who's one of my favorite fighters, and I was either Muhammad Ali, I was either, you know, Ray Leonard, I was either Tommy Hearns, you know, I was never me. So you had 25 years of involvement in boxing as an audition Basically. <laughs> to become an actor yeah, in a way? Yeah, 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 you know? Yeah. And I just want to say, like, one, th one thing that struck me about who Michael is and his experience acting the role of a boxer is that... Michael's a really sensitive guy, as many great actors are. He's sensitive to uh, social dynamics. He's sensitive to how people see him. But that sensitivity 
in the boxing field, you know, coming up, fighting against guys who are looking to take your head off, mm -hmm. that's something you need to keep buried inside as a way to protect yourself. Yeah. That's a liability. He was saying only only Ali was someone who maybe showed some vulnerability, but maybe that was when he was at the at yeah. the top already. Yeah. That's a real liability when you're a professional fighter. And then one of the great things about Michael's life is that after his boxing career, he was liberated of wearing that mask mm -hmm. that he wore, you know, as acting the part of a professional boxer. And suddenly that sensitivity, he it was able he was able to to show that to others, and that suddenly was a strength as an artist and as an actor. And uh, there are a hell of a lot of people in this world who have that sensitivity, who keep those walls up, who keep that mask on for their entire lives and never find a way to turn what they perceive as a liability into a strength and find that as being the connective tissue between them, themselves and other people. Michael feels a hell of a lot more comfortable in the company of artists and actors than he did, you know, mean mugging other uh, right. pro fighters back when. when it's it, false, man. Yeah. yeah, have to cut you off, but like, you know, I couldn't imagine like, like post, like boxing, me being a boxing trainer. And I could do it now because, like, like you know, I've experienced like you know both sides, and you know, I've been able to examine myself forensically, like, like deep dive. You know, so okay, I know, like, you know, how I got to this place. I know, like, why fight this fight. I can work with that. You know, but like, twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, after like Herbie Hyde, blah blah blah, or like I'm still in the midst of that, like, you know, that uh, hurricane man. I, I don't know, because it's it's uh, it's too. Fra I'm too fragile. I'm fragile. I admit that. You know, boxers are some of those, Mike Tyson, one of the most, like, super sensitive human beings in the world. He has to be. Like, you know, to fight with that kind of, 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 of um, uh, um, intensity, ambitiousness, dude, like, you know, that's, you know what's, what's, what's in the engine? Sensitivity, me. From, from Open the, the hood, there's, a, there's like an engine of, uh, of, of, like, you know, sensitive wiring. And Mike. From the from the passion, trace Damn. the wounds. Sorry. From the passions, trace the wounds. Bam. Right. What am I at effect of? And that's what drives us, man. Like in in like in boxing, what Mike was effect of, what uh, Mike was at effect of, drove him drove him as a fighter. But you know, uh, post boxing, you have to manipulate that uh, that. Uh, that tightrope, man, and like, you know, that tightrope and hope you can land in the right place. It's funny how we miss that, though, because you bring up Tyson, and I, mm -hmm. I would have never guessed when I first saw him as a little kid that mm -hmm. this is a lisping, because everybody said the same thing about him. He fights like it's just, he's an instinctual fighter. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, he wasn't. He was a little kid right. who's lisping with an, right. a cartoon, cartoonishly high-pitched voice mm -hmm. who could never fight back, mm -hmm. picked on by everybody right. for being gay right. um, and too sensitive, right. and he snapped and became something else, but the instinct was the opposite. He got in the midst of a great mentor who knew this thing, the head thing, the mind thing, the sensitivity thing, embrace sensitivity, embrace sensitivity, embrace being afraid because the guy you're stepping in the ring with, guess what? He's afraid too. He just doesn't know it, and that gives Mike the edge. Well, and and so I want to I want to talk to you, Mickey, about 
the show seems like this backstage pass into the human condition in a way that a lot of people hadn't experienced before and it was moving and it was funny you know mike was dealing with piles of dark shit and yet you were able to tell it in a way that was relatable that made us laugh as much as ourselves as at some of the details and stuff that you were talking about you know your dad stuff yeah a lot of us have had a dad where yeah. we have issues with them <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. in our own in our own right. ways but i wonder Leading into this, you're a commercial illustrator, a very successful commercial illustrator, but you have two film projects that you get involved with that you, you didn't see yourself going down the path as a director, but they are following a pretty clear line of exploring unexpected details. So I wonder if you could talk about those two projects that led up to um, getting a passport to do Losers. Sure. Yeah, I when I was working as an illustrator, I always felt that I had more to give. I, I, I wanted to explore storytelling in some capacity. Um, truth be told, I am a failed graphic novelist. I always saw my storytelling possibly manifesting in a in a book project, graphic novel of some sort. So I was always collecting stories nonfiction stories, story, fictional story ideas that I would jot down. This was something that I did for 10 years as I was working as a commercial illustrator, looking for opportunities to do storytelling. Um, I never found it. Uh, I never found a way to, to make money doing that. And the illustration career was going really well. So um, the way that I got my first opportunity to direct a project was that um, I had started to do very basic uh, animation uh, for, for advertising and I got brought in to do some animated vignettes for a 30 for 30 film about Bo Jackson. Uh, that uh, came out on ESPN, did very, very well, and at the same time I was experimenting with some written and illustrated projects on my personal blog. No one would hire me to do uh, storytelling. At the time, I had a, a regular column that I was illustrating for Tennis Magazine. And I'm a former tennis player in, in my teenage years. And so it, it felt like a, a perfect fit for me. Uh, I would talk to the art directors and say, send me out to a tournament. I'll come back, give me a full page. I'll write and illustrate a story of what's happening with the best teenage players in the country. Uh, you don't have to even pay me more. Just give me a chance to tell a little story, you know. Um, and I never found that opportunity. So I was I was writing and illustrating stories for my blog, and sending those around, trying to get somebody else to give me an opportunity. And um, eventually, uh, that work made its way into the ESPN universe. Uh, they asked me if I would do something similar for them. I had a story idea, one of those many stories that I had collected. You know, putting in a putting in a drawer for someday, maybe I can develop this into something. And they said, well, how about instead of doing this as a written and illustrated blog post, why don't we give you a little bit more budget and you try and turn it into a short film? What's the story? So that was the story of uh, a 56-year-old IT manager um, who participates in a miniature golf uh, almost like bowling league, where there are a bunch of older guys who are insanely good at putt-putt golf, which is a Spartan brand of miniature golf. 
that involves a lot of bank shots and finessing hills. And the story was that uh, one day when they were all together playing in a tournament, this guy, Rick Baird, the IT manager, had the greatest day of his life and scored a perfect game, 18 hole-in-ones in a row. And I had read this story just on an obscure blog. <clears throat> and I thought, this is absolutely incredible. And my first instinct as someone who, who loves games and miniature golf is, I just wanted to know how he did it. Hmm. I wanted to ask him, what bank shots did you play? And I wanted to go out to Richmond, Virginia and play that course and see if I could do it too. Hmm. Not, I could never do 18 holes once in a row, but I wanted to see what it was like. I'd never heard a story like that. So my initial instinct was, I just wanted to get Rick on the phone and the blog post would just be diagrams of each of the holes showing the lines that he took uh, to score his perfect game and do a little interview about the legacy of that, the lead up to that, uh, talking about the, how it is the case that there are a group of dozens of older guys and gals who play very, very, very serious miniature golf. It was a window into a world that I had no idea about. And uh, I just wanted to learn more. Well, and, and just, uh, sorry to interrupt, but, but there's something more than that. You say this guy had the greatest day of his life, but one of the things I loved about the show that I thought set the tone is you inventory some of these extraordinarily rarefied air achievements that have been done in the world of sports that are revered by hundreds of millions of people. The amount of perfect games. I mean, what were some of the other ones? Yeah, uh, horses that have won the Triple Crown. Right. Uh, yeah, perfect games in baseball. Um, yeah, 900 games in bowling where you score consecutive 300 games. Uh, achievements like, like that. And, and what I knew was that uh, there had only been three <laughs> perfect games. So it's not only the greatest moment in his life. One could argue, if one was of the mind to, that this was one of the greatest human achievements ever done. <laughs> yeah. Certainly one of the most rare yeah. with three, which I thought was what a delicious place to start, yeah. is maybe this guy believes it. And w wouldn't it be fun to enter that world where the holy grail is what this guy has done and he has acolytes who revere him. And there's footage of him on the 18th hole that you had. Well, I think what, what you're asking me about, about you know, my storytelling instincts relative to this story and relative to losers, is that I felt instinctively that when I reached out to, to Rick to talk about this experience, that he's been made fun of a lot. These guys have been made fun of a lot. The way that uh, this story, even in the blog post, was told was with this wink-wink, look at these guys, they're kind of dorks. To do this they're on a childish you know putt-putt golf course and i thought what if i took a different approach what if i did compare their achievement to the best uh achievements in sporting history not in an ironic way because even as a sports fan i do have moments when i look at all of this and say this is pretty random sports like basketball and football there's something cartoonishly stupid about all of these things. Chasing a ball. Yeah. So the real drama in sports comes from the passion that the participants bring to the sport. It's not the sport itself. And these guys undoubtedly had committed years of their lives, 
hundreds of hours to this practice. And I don't care what, what I think about it. I'm curious to know why they dedicated themselves to that. And so when I first reached out to them, I, again, unironically laid my cards on the table and said, I want to frame this as being something genuinely special and interesting. And after they let their guards down, and when those were the first interviews I ever did in my entire life, uh, collectively, all of them relayed that experience as if they had a collective religious experience. Hmm. And I just thought, wow. Well, it, it, it strikes me like I, I've seen wrestlers talk about when they didn't admit that it was fake. Very often they'd say, after they admitted it, they'd say, I don't go to you when you go to a Marvel movie and say that was amazing. I don't say, and it was fake. Because it, it's, it's not the point. Mm. The point is, did you enjoy it? And if you enjoy it, like, who, it, that's fake too. But it didn't mean that you didn't care. If you cry during a movie, yeah, it's fake. But, but that's not the point. You found truth in it sort of mm. thing. So I think that's interesting that you took it seriously, probably one of the first people to document it, who gave them their due in an unironic way, as you say, and there's something, you get transported somewhere, like my reaction to it was Gates of Heaven with Errol Morris, where I want to laugh at people talking in an existential way about what a pet cemetery means in a town I've never heard of that's being moved across the highway or something. Somehow that's the first place I went with these people almost being moved to tears talking about putt-putt, which my memory, that's from my childhood, is just a really fun thing to share with friends kind of thing. I never thought you could take it seriously, you know, that you'd wake up in the morning <laughs> thinking I need to go out there and get these hole-in-ones. So, and, and I have to say from the experience of that film going out into the world, I had no idea how it was going to be received. Mm. Again, it felt like an art project, you know, a conceptual idea. Well... Will people watch a seven-minute film about the greatest day in putt-putt history? Yeah. What I found was that maybe because of the ridiculousness of the premise, viewers who went in to have some schadenfreude and to maybe laugh at these guys, the poetry of, of the seriousness of the, how it was presented, it surprised them. It completely blindsided mm. them. And they had a, an emotional experience that they never felt they could have for a putt-putt golf story. Right. And that dynamic, uh, artistically to me, I just found that to be incredibly, incredibly uh, interesting. It was something that I wanted to pursue more in subsequent stories. So you find another project. I think, you, uh, I think your, your ambition artistically gets bigger than putt-putt with this next story. So can you talk about the next one that you did? The... Sure. So... After the miniature golf film goes out and it does better than anyone could expect a, a miniature golf story could do. I mean, it gets nominated for big awards and I mean, Rick Baird was invited on the Today Show. I mean, it really was fun, a fun ride. I got uh, invited into the ESPN Films office to ask if I had any other ideas that I wanted to develop. And I told them that some of the stories that I had collected were interesting stories about failure in sports and then I wanted to do a series uh, on that. They asked if I had any stories in particular that would fit that idea and I told them the story that in 2003 there was a racehorse in Japan who became famous for enduring a losing streak of epic proportion 
But at the same time as that losing streak was happening, there was a horrible recession that was happening in Japan. And this racehorse became almost like a patron saint of perseverance. That's how she was seen. And all of these people who had been laid off of their jobs, even, even people that had terminal illness, would come to the racetrack to watch this racehorse lose, again, in a totally unironic way, and say, if she can keep trying as hard as she is on the racetrack, even despite losing, I can keep trying really hard in my life to pick up the pieces and to overcome the losing streak that I feel like I'm on. So I told that story to them. They well, never heard it before. And, and sorry to interrupt, but th th there was also an opportunity with this racehorse to create a religious relic of this achievement, of this patron saint, which is buy a ticket where you lose and you ha you're connected to this wonderful thing. That's right. There were so many details about it that I felt, again, it's instinctively, this could never happen in America. <laughs> and and the, the reasons why is what I wanted to explore artistically. You know, and for a company like ESPN to, which honestly does perpetuate a lot of the winner-centric uh, narratives that you know pervade, uh, for them to give me a chance to tell this kind of story, I thought was a great opportunity. They loved the idea; they'd never heard it before, uh, and they immediately said, "Let's make a deal for you to make this film." Let's let's do a film about horse racing's answer to the Washington Generals, the most losing team in team sports history, <laughs> and somehow they somehow they might be more interesting than the Harlem Globetrotters beating them every single time. It's interesting, like how you're the guy on the crest of that wave of of uh, wanting to penetrate that emotionality, that there's value in losing, that that may, maybe being overlooked by the culture. I just wonder like, cause I don't know anybody who saw that or saw the putt-putt or, or then the Losers series where they just weren't blindsided by how obvious it is that like we know people who've overcome obstacles in their life and trauma and stuff and we found great value and solace from it. I just wonder like, why did it take so long for us to catch up to that? What well, seems simple, but it's, it's obviously not. I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer that. If, uh, if anything, I felt that it was insane that it hadn't been done before. But, but I will say that, you know, now having spent, you know, years telling these types of stories and pulling together teams to tell these stories with dignity and integrity that are surprising, that are emotional, that the execution you're threading a very, a very fine needle. Mm. Uh, in, the tone is very, very important uh, to, to find that, that dignifies the stories, that allows for the kind of humor that you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one wouldn't think that when you're telling a, you know, a tragic story of, of a professional athlete's you know, most humiliating failure, that there could ever be moments of humor in that. But all of us know personally that sometimes when we look back on stories of failed relationships or jobs where we were fired, there are moments of humor in that. Yeah. Dark humor sometimes. Well, it's that Nora Ephron thing about if you're the victim of it in the moment, 
you're the victim, but you can be the hero of it in the retelling. Totally. And I just felt... You get the laugh. Totally. And I, and I also resented the fact that, or resented the way that a lot of the stories were told where, you know, if I asked Michael to tell me the story of, you know, him losing a, a boxing match, that the way that the filmmakers would portray it was that, here come the swelling strings. Here come the slow zoom into his face that's welling up with tears. To me, that's so hacky. Yeah. And it's so forced. And an audience, it doesn't pass the smell test as being genuine. Right. So I felt like there was a, a different way to do it. And I, I just wanted to explore it. I didn't know if it was going to really work. That's you were interested in it. I was interested. Well, Michael, like, we're, we're now just a few days after... Andy Ruiz fought his rematch against Anthony Joshua. And in the lead up to that fight, mm. I called two people to, to interview for Ring Magazine to get some insight into the head of Andy Ruiz pulling off what a lot of experts said was the biggest upset since Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson. And, and you had a tremendous upset victory against Tommy, Tommy Morrison as well. I thought it was really interesting that both Buster and you mm looked at his situation and saw him being able to overcome uh, all the doubters. And you, you're just like, this guy's going to come in there. He's going he's gonna to do even better against Anthony Joshua. What did you think about seeing somebody who's kind of in, in that position that you had where, boom, you're the champion. And the next fight, as it turned out, Andy Ruiz, where is he now where he, he had a similar experience to you? Mm. You know, it, it's 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 easier to win that weight championship, or well, yeah, it's easier to win it than to keep it. Yeah, you know, psychologically, like you know, you know, when you're on top of the mountaintop, man, and you're looking down, I mean, it's it's you get comfortable. Um, when you're climbing up, you know, there's there's nothing but like you know resistance and blah blah blah. You know, you're fighting for something, but looking down, you know, you. Well, he can go is down. You know, I don't think that um, Andy uh, um, was irresponsible. I just think maybe he got overwhelmed by the whole, like, you know, bigness of, like, being heavyweight champion. Well, it's funny because Buster, Buster had this line. Yeah. I asked him, like, I've never heard, like, a scene of what was happening in the lead-up to fighting Tyson for you. Like, what were you doing? Like, while you were still in Columbus, Ohio yeah. and stuff. And he's like, well, I remember one thing just before New Year's. Yeah. I was at a party, yeah. and there's this beautiful girl across the room, yeah. crowd of people, yeah. beautiful girl, and I can see she's looking at me. Mm. And I'm like, is she looking at me? Oh yeah, she is looking at me. Yeah. So I walk over to her, and as soon as I get in front of her, she starts shaking her head. And she goes, boy, you must need it really badly. And he says, what? You must need the money really badly to be fighting that guy. I see. Yeah. And I asked him, like, where is that? What did that girl think three weeks later when you knocked his ass out? Marry me, Dustin, please. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Come on, baby. Maybe. Come on. Yeah, come maybe. Yeah, okay. But for the rest of Buster's life, he's the guy that did it. Yeah. And more and more, we're forgetting that yeah. what happened after. Just because, like, you know, the, 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 to uh, speak to Mickey's point about, like, you know, the psychology of athletes, man, just because you win something, like, you know, like, just because you have this great moment, it doesn't mean fulfillment. Yeah. does not mean you're going to be fulfilled. It's temporary. That's a, that's a lie. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Know, when I experienced like when I knocked out Tommy Morris and blah, 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 ten minutes after, I would, like, you know, the fight's announced, but I'm the world champion, I 
plummet hmm. into depression. You know why? I gotta do it again. Terrifying. You're trapped. Let me see you do it. You know, I'm thinking like all these experts. Let me see you do it, man, because I, I don't want to be here personally. It's funny when you say that. It reminds me of there's like really one candid interview that Robin Williams gave where he talked about some of those things. Right. Where you get that backstage pass yeah. into the process the of somebody, the right. show. Yeah. And he's talking about like after I won the Academy Award mm -hmm. and that Mark Maron was interviewing him and Maron was like, they can never take it away from you. Like you've got that validation that you're taken seriously as an actor. And he's like, within a week I was Mork again. That's I'm right. back to just That's this right. one gimmicky character that I can never escape. Right. I'm not a great actor. I'm right. not the Juilliard actor right. where it paid off. I'm right. just, oh, you're more. Can I have a photo kind of thing? Mm -hmm. I thought, boy. Yeah. And that's the fantasy about, about winning. Mm -hmm. That glory is forever. You'll never have any problems again. Right. And that's what we're all projecting yeah. onto athletes like Michael or onto actors like Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. That if we get to the top of the mountaintop, we got it made. That glory is forever. And those problems that, that you had on the way up, they all melt away forevermore. That's right. That's, right. Right. That's a ridiculous That's fantasy. Right. Right. Just because you won the heavyweight championship or the Oscar does not mean you're gonna be fulfilled, dude. Well it's funny, it's funny too as you're saying I'm sorry to It's scary. Right. To embrace that. And most of us don't. Well, I think we think just like you guys are saying, it's well, a walk off. But you got you make it sound like it's a walk off home run. And it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. More people are coming after you and want more from you. Right? It, it's not, you're, you're clearing the way, yeah. and it's just the glory that I live in and get to bask in. It's, you make it sound like suddenly I've been trapped. Like we were talking yesterday about Mitch Hedge, Hedberg, Hedgeberg's observation about being a comedian is, it feels like you were all chasing me and then everybody just sat down. Mm -hmm. And I thought, boy, that's how I feel if I had to exactly. walk out on a stage. Yeah. So these people are chasing, they want something from me. If I don't give it to them, they're gonna be really angry at me. Mike Tyson's situation, at his height, I could never walk in those shoes, man. I would, I would not want to. That is hell. Yeah. To me. People throwing themselves at you, reporters, blah blah blah, like like you know, like like people genuflecting when like if you walk by, they genuflect. That's cool. I don't want that. I think I think Norman Mailer said that about Foreman when he was champ going into the Ali fight. That how does it feel? How would it feel? to be glared at by like the collective gaze of masculinity, that you're the guy. Yeah, yeah. You're the guy, I could fuck you up. So Bam, you think, exactly, that's what it is. <laughs> I thought, yeah. oh, God. That's what it is, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Huh. You know, and like, you know, it, I mean, from time to time, like, you know, I'll be at an airport or whatever, and someone like will see me, and I, and I think they know who I am. I think, and then they'll, like, God damn, I didn't bang your wife, do what, what, what? <laughs> but, you know, what's with the energy? Well, but, you know, maybe like you know, they think I'm somebody else. Well, it's weird. You know? that it's weird for me because I'm usually pretty good at spotting a face. Like if right. I know the face, and, right. and your face did hit me when you beat Morrison. I think I was 14, 15 years old, mm. and I remember watching, going like, Tommy Morrison. I remember him from Rocky Five, and and yeah. oh, he's he's a really hard punch. Like he's almost as good as Stallone made him in that movie. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Michael Bent just knocked him out. Right, a nobody. Yeah, well, not nobody, but I just I didn't know Bro, I didn't well, know who you were. Nobody. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know who you were. That I wasn't I was new to boxing. Right, gotcha. It's gotcha, not that gotcha. you weren't somebody I should right. know. I was just ignorant. Yeah. And I was thinking when the next time I saw your face, this is way before YouTube. Yeah. Was going to the Ali movie, and 
oh, there's Sonny Liston, but that, like, who is that guy playing Sonny Liston? He sure looks like a boxer, but you fooled me. Good. I didn't. I didn't place yeah. that it was you. Nice. I love the performance. Nice. Good. And normally, I really don't like the way actors play boxers, yeah. but with yours, I was like, Phew. Yeah. Uh What was that line you say to Ali to to Will Smith? I can repeat that. Yeah. Uh, I'm a fuck you up, dude. Well, not dude, but like I'm a I'm a. Uh, and you yell it. I'm a fuck. Well, it was you. like it came from a place. Yeah. It came from a real place. And my experiences with, with like you know the beautiful Will Smith, he gave me that. Yeah. Because we're gonna have experiences. You know, we training camp, blah blah blah, and that came from a real place. You know, um, whether it was Sonny Liston saying or Michael Ben saying it, that was real. I re- it was directed at this motherfucker right here. I I don't remember a lot from that movie vividly, but yeah. I remember exactly where you said that line because I yeah. was on Granville Street in Vancouver at the Capital Six Theater, and yeah. the moment you said that, the whole theater shut up, and I went, "Wow." Will Smith isn't having that effect on the audience so far playing Ali, but whoever this guy is did. The whole audience just went silent. Like it really struck me where I just went, whoa. Because they were, we were scared. (laughs) Well, once again, like, you know, that was a real moment. Yeah. You know, uh, you have to, like, you know, I had to source a real moment. Yeah. And that was this, because, like, you know, when you're working on films, you're like, you know, you're in in pre production, you know, make relationships and things happen and blah, blah, blah. my man gave me a, a gem to use. Okay. My man, thank you. Well, and from there, from there, like, it's interesting because I, I had no idea of your involvement with Clint Eastwood. Yeah. With Million Dollar Baby. That's now a controversial film. A lot of people have issues with it being as high-ranked in some critic circles, and other people really dismiss it. I personally really love that film, yeah. and I love the book that it was based on. Yeah. FX Tool, yeah? FX Tool, right, gotcha. and... There's this backstory that I always get connected to that this guy was plotting forever as a boxing trainer and a writer, never yeah. made any money off of either, right? And then dies just before this film comes yeah. out that wins the best picture, and you just That's wow. a film in itself, and, right? Yeah. It's true, it's yeah. true. But there are so many truths about um, that line about this woman, Hillary Swank's character, mm-hmm. um, believing in a dream that nobody can see but you. Mm-hmm. That I was like, I've never heard lines like this talking about what boxing means, like the beauty of it. Yeah. Not just the aggression, yeah. Yeah. violence kind of That's stuff, right. but like these are the people that I've met in boxing is that yeah. these are sensitive dreamers walking into a casino risking their lives right. to try to get somewhere That's right. where they want to where they need to go. And not a lot of people outside that circle relate to that. No. Apparently, like, you know, FX Tool did you did, Tom Hauser does, like a number of other great, like, you know, boxing journalists, like, you know, they relate to that, uh, the humanity, man. Yeah, the humanity. And the doubt. That's precious. It's, it's precious. It's also scary. You know, that's why I'm like, you know, we love Mike Tyson. He shows us, like, who he is. His heart. Well, that's my struggle with it in a lot of ways is I hate boxing, but I love boxers is I'm with a crowd of people watching somebody on a tightrope, and we're not just watching. Yeah. We're shaking the tightrope, yeah. hoping that you fall. Yeah, yeah. Right. I have a hard time, uh, you know, the whole Ruiz and Joshua thing, man. You know, I, I have a hard time watching it because, like, you know, I, I, I know, like, you know, that the world see these two guys, I mean, they're performing, but they have no idea that they're performing. But the world sees, like, you know, as, like, blood and guts, and, like, you know, dude, um, you could die in, in this thing on this stage in front of 
a billion people. And when you die, oh, we may like, you know, cry and express like, you know, of remorse, but like, you know, next week, kill him. Hit him with the left hook in the gut. Hit him in the head or the throat. It's back to business. And, 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 and not just that, but like contrary to how movies look at boxing, mm. your story seems defined by two split second punches. The one you landed and the one you got hit with that yeah. almost killed you. Yeah. One of them won you the heavyweight championship that you yeah. weren't supposed to throw, yeah. weren't expected to throw, yeah. and the other you didn't see coming almost yeah. took your life. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. that big change, big changes, like whiplash changes. Yeah. But, you know, once again, like, you know, I, I, I gave an interview, uh, this British boxing magazine, man, like, after I beat Tommy, man, and I said, look, this is, this is, well, it made me just like, it was like, kind of preaching, but I said, uh, this is, this moment is, 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 it, it's not going to last long. You know, because I didn't want it to. You know, I knew my time, like, getting punched and dodging punches was limited. I just didn't know, like, you know, that Herbie High would beat me, like, in that fashion. You know, I, you know, but it happened. Did you, did you, I mean, last, last thing I want to ask you is, is, are you happy if, if losers mm. is the, the representational legacy that you have? I mean, millions of people saw it, right? You, you know that. <laughs> tens, tens of millions. Tens of, tens of millions of people were exposed to your story, yeah. about lots of them for the first time. Mm. Um, are you happy with it? That's. Not, I don't mean it in a morbid way, you know, like after we're gone and there's, there's something artistic that's out there to show, show the world who you were. But. I think you dropped the ball, Mickey, on that one. I'm busting your chops. I'm busting your chops. No, man. I can honestly, like, you know, in, in, in complete candor, bro, I, I'm completely happy with, like, you know, um, the tone of it, what I um, was allowed to say, um, what I was allowed to bring to it. Um, because um, I was like in in the space uh, when we shot that, I was like in. Well, I'm, I'm always like in the space of like you know, unbalanced. Yeah. yeah. You know, I live on a tightrope. I get it. You know, but uh, um, I I've never had a chance to express that. And making this true, like you know, said so, <laughs> so, man, you got an open range, man. Eh? Do what you have to do, like, you know, express what you have to express about your experiences, you know, honestly. And I can lie very well, but I'm also a fucking great truth teller, bro. You know, that's, that's, uh, you know, I get off on telling the truth. Not get off, but like, you know, I, 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 I you know, it's, that's, that's, that's just, if I can, if you can get in a boxing ring in front of people that you don't know, and subject yourself, subject, subject yourself to getting hit. You can, you have the, you have license to tell the fucking truth. That's how I, you know, um, uh, um, um, uh, that's how I work it out. You know. Well, and I think, I think for, I mean, the first time I met you, the first time I heard your story in Central Park, I was struck by this guy is more articulate about process here than any writer I've ever read about these things. Mm. But we think that Norman Mailer is going to have a better insight into this stuff, sparring with Jose Torres or so. You know, like he has no experience in what you're doing, right. but, but right. you, were just you were just tossing them out for yeah. two hours yeah. where I was like, 
this is a lot better than the fight ever was in terms of me not learning. Because like you know, Michael Ben, like you know, is this eloquent guy? You know, like and I've been like you know, I've been, I've been um, a mentor, but like you know, these like genius friggin' minds, man. Like Rick Edelstein, Michael Mann, Ron Schell. I mean, these guys like hit me the game. Like like they showed me who I was. Holy, that's yeah, okay, great, man. I'm, I salute you. And I would fight in any war that you guys like, you know, want to uh, be involved with. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Well, it just felt it felt to me like, and I think you are very eloquent. But I think it Thanks. was like Zapruder film, where nobody's ever said that Abraham Zapruder was a great cameraman. Right, right. Wow. But you didn't need to be. It's quite the reference, that was Zapruder. Because <laughs> what wow. you're what you're shooting. Yeah. Yeah, sells itself nice. <laughs> like we want to giggle into that moment. <laughs> Nobody's like, boy, the cinematography here is superb. You know, like that's and, an impressive reference, bro. No, 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 but it's 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 a really clear one for yeah. me about how you were getting at something where I'd never I never had that keyhole into some stuff. You know, I want an asteroid to hit Earth before the fight begins. Yeah, you know, that's yeah. better than any screenwriter and ever every wrote. Fighter feels that way. Yeah. Mike felt that way. You know, Mike at his height felt that way. Ray Leonard felt that way. Duran felt that way. But he, they mask. We, you know, we're, we 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 uh, wear a mask. Best fucking actors in the world, boxers. Are you more like you've gone on stage playing Othello? I think mm -hmm. I would almost rather get hit in the face by Mike Tyson than play Othello. Negative. <laughs> no. I I loved it. Huh. I loved it. It was it was challenging. You know, um, I'm not like you know a classically trained actor but like you know I could I could I proved I could do classical work yeah. and it took like your work and that's where yeah. you want to be absolutely yeah absolutely yeah cool. let me tell those stories yeah. cool yeah. thanks guys thank you thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode of tourist information the producers for the show are George Alarcon Swaby Dolgan Media Myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening. <laughs>